Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, Liv, the woman who's here telling you all about something that is explicitly not a myth, even if it's being covered on her myth show. I'm just thrilled to have the ability to share all this with you, particularly, as always, these conversation episodes. Last week, when I spoke with Flint Dibble, we covered the true archaeology of the region, why we know that Atlantis isn't a place anyone should bother looking for, because every bit of real evidence that we have enforces the idea that it was simply something Plato made up to prove his philosophical theory. We touched upon why it's an issue to be looking for places like Atlantis, how it hurts real archaeology, and how it's linked to some really dark and racist shit. But this week, we're really diving into that. 
I spoke with David S. Anderson, an archaeologist who studies pseudo-archaeology, archaeology that purports to be real archaeology but ignores methodology and simply wants to prove something they've already decided is true, even if none of the evidence suggests that it is. We talked about pseudo-archaeology and how it's become a pop culture sensation. We talked about why it's so dark and dangerous that shows exist where the entire premise is theorizing on whether or not non-white ancient peoples were capable of building things like the pyramids. Even just editing this episode, I learned so much all over again. It's so true, so interesting, and dark at the same time, and I'm so thrilled I was able to have David on the show to talk about this. It's seriously important, especially when one is talking about Atlantis. And speaking of Atlantis, David gives a bit of a breakdown on when and how Atlantis transformed from a thing that Plato invented to what it is today. Spoiler, it happened very recently, at least in comparison to when Plato actually wrote it. Before we dive in, we did record this episode back in October, so you'll have to bear with past Liv, who hadn't had the chance to reread The Timaeus and the Critias before recording, but oh, I certainly have now. (laughs) Also, listening back, I found myself sounding very judgmental on Believers of Atlantis, and so I just want to clarify that any of that judgment or annoyance or even disdain is for those people who believe it against all of the facts, who dispute all of the facts and continue on with this theory that has so much basis in racism and a willful ignorance of actual archaeology and history. Those people are shit, and I'm actually afraid of them with every moment that I prepare and record these episodes, because even if you haven't encountered it, there is a whole wide world of this shit, and it's scary. (laughs) But if you just believed Atlantis like I did when you were a kid because you never knew any better, because you were raised to believe it was a myth or even history, and you're listening to this now, oh, you are so welcome here. Welcome to the other side. Conversations, Deus Ex Alien, Ancient Realities versus Pseudo-Archaeology with David S. Anderson. One of the questions I get all the time is like, it goes to Troy and Atlantis. It's mm-hmm. like, well, there was this myth about Troy and so, and that was real. And so if there's a myth about Atlantis, it must be real. And for me, it's really important to approach that and say like, wait a second, these are not the same kind of stories and they don't have the mm-hmm. same kind of origin to them. Well, also, I mean, the idea of Troy being real in the way that it's real in the Iliad is not at all confirmed. Yeah, yeah it's not even like there's total consensus on that. And Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll just dive right in. I mean, talking about pseudo-archaeology and sort of how that interacts with, I guess, real archaeology and the ways it mm-hmm. causes trouble. But I mean, yeah, all of this came up because... The, a huge subset of the world seems to believe or want to believe that Atlantis is a myth and therefore could be a real place, but it's neither. It's not even a myth, which is what the thing I always go back to is as, a, as somebody who 
you know, tells mythology for a job. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it isn't one. And I'll by the time this airs, I'll have gotten into that more in depth in my podcast. But you study pseudo-archaeology. I know not specifically Mediterranean or anything, right? You do you, you focus on Mesoamerica, did I see? Yeah. So my, my background as an archaeologist is working in Mexico, studying the ancient Maya. I've done field work you know, uh, in many sites in Mexico. I've done some field work in North America, and I've been lucky enough to work in Egypt once. But uh, yes, this is my, my traditional archaeological background is not in the Mediterranean per se. Mm-hmm. And so how did you get into sort of the more, the pseudo-archaeology aspect, the sort of, and maybe we should define that as well yeah. if you want to do that. Yeah, no, I think it's actually important to talk about like, what do I, you know, what do we mean when we say pseudo-archaeology? Because especially, I get a lot of kickback online of people like, oh, you just don't like that interpretation or you don't mm-hmm. want to believe that or you're denying or covering up the truth in some way, shape or form. Uh, the reality is that pseudo-archaeology is something very particular uh, and it's one that, you know, it's Claim, making claims about the archaeological record while uh, and sort of using archaeological data sometimes to do that, but totally sort of ignoring, throwing out the window any kind of archaeological methodology. And mm-hmm. so, you know, a common example, a way of looking at this is cherry picking, right? When somebody just grabs a couple of things and tells you, oh, you don't have to worry about that other stuff, you know, then, you know, it, it's you're dealing with some form of pseudoscience or pseudo-archaeology in that process. And I think Atlantis is an interesting one. When I talk about this with my students and whatnot, it, Atlantis doesn't become what I would call pseudo-archaeology until like the 19th century, uh, mm-hmm. because it's not until the 19th. Well, we've got some people in the 1500s who try to claim it might have been a real place and try to kind of, you know, suggest the Americas were Atlantis. But by and large, we don't get any sort of serious claims of trying to allegedly find or interact with the archaeological record until uh, the late uh, 19th century when Ignatius Donnelly publishes his book. Uh, and Donnelly, if, for those who have not heard of this guy, uh, Minnesota congressman, because you know, I guess, I don't know, I think when you're not in Congress, I guess you just have stuff to do. So you write Atlantis books. Uh, but he wrote this book, Atlantis and the Antediluvian World. And he was in the modern era, basically the first person to try to say, I can find Atlantis. And he does so by looking at the archaeological record of the world. And in particular, uh, he looks at the Maya and Egypt. And he basically tries to say, like, you know, these you know, these two cultures and other cultures are so similar, they must have a common origin. Uh, and the reality is, is that, you know, when he wrote his book, and we didn't know very much, particularly about the Maya, we knew like practically nothing about the Maya when he wrote his book. So it was very easy for him to kind of draw these parallels and claim that these two cultures were super similar because he didn't have a very critical audience because his audience, you know, there wasn't much information they could push back on him with. Uh, but Atlantis, you know, so if we like, what is pseudo-archaeology? For me, Atlantis doesn't become that until, you know, Ignatius Donnelly comes along and says, hey, I can find or pinpoint where Atlantis was using the archaeological record. That's, yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I, I've seen that book because it's very old. So it's in the public domain and kind of just like flipped through it. And I'm sure by the time this is out, I'll have gone into it a bit in the episode because i think it's one of the only i mean if you if you look up books on atlantis when it i mean obviously it's not coming up very often because it's incredibly old but Mm -hmm. just certainly at at the used bookstore uh used bookstore near me there's they have this series of like it's some kind of series of like really old public domain weird books that they've kind of Mm -hmm. republished and like people are just trying to make money off of it you know, for good or bad. Um, but I think you could definitely pick that up and be like, oh, this is like a, this is an old book. And therefore, you know, I'm sure there's some real interesting stuff in here. And then it's like, yeah. 
And and there's another, you know, especially to think of it that way, these kind of books that show up, you know, free online, one that people can look for. There's a whole other crop of books about Atlantis that come out sort of in the late 19th century, early 20th century uh, that can look very serious. And, well, and they are they are very serious. I shouldn't say that. Um, mm. Can look very legit, uh, uh, but they're not archaeological. They are spiritual books. Uh, mm. The the rise of the spiritualism movement in the late 20th century uh, gets very invested in Atlantis. This uh, happens with uh, the writings of Helena Bovatsky from the Theosophical Society. This happens with Rudolf Steiner. This happens with Edgar Cayce, the American psychic Edgar Cayce. Uh, these folks get super into Atlantis and write a lot about it. And uh, they add a lot to what we think we know about Atlantis, especially if you kind of slide into the pop culture world. Uh, I love to play this game. I do it with my students uh, every you know year or so with a new crop of students, and I'll just say, "Hey, what do you know about Atlantis? Anything? Go. What do you, you know? Tell me anything." And I start writing stuff on the board as they tell me stuff, and I always kind of start dividing up the the big chalkboard or the whiteboard in the front of the room and put stuff on all the stuff that came from Plato on one or sort of uh, on one side. And then all the stuff that actually comes from these sort of late 19th century spiritualists on the other side of the board and both sides of the board sides of the board end up being pretty full by the time we're done with this exercise. And then I, you know, I try to ask them, well, how do you know any of this stuff? And it's, it's this great sort of moment where they're like, I, I don't know. And, and I'm not trying to pick on my students. This is what we all do. They're mm. like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I saw a movie or I saw something on TV and they have these little factoids that they remember, uh, but yeah, where it actually came from is sort of all over the map and isn't even coming all the way from Plato sometimes, or for that matter, uh, Donnelly even. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, so often it's like you just take in information throughout your life. You you often can't call back exactly where you heard it. You're like, I've seen this thing or I've heard this thing. And I mean, for me, you know, I forget when it came out, but I think I was like a early teenager, young teenager, when the Disney Atlantis movie came out, which is, you know, I, I'll stand by. It's a very entertaining thing of nonsense. Yeah, like it's a good movie. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really enjoyable. Um, it's, I think more interesting when you know the, that there is a not, you know, this like mm -hmm. backstory, this history, this mythology around it. Um, the last time I watched it, I was like, I had just, started trying to dive into it. I tried to do it for an episode of the podcast ages ago, but it is, it's such a daunting task trying to properly convey it. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'd read um, the Timaeus and Critias of Plato and just it's like, Oh, this is it. How did I not know that this is it? This is like the only thing from the ancient Greek world that we have on Atlantis. And somehow it's become this thing that like, you, yeah. you think there's so much more based unless you have looked or, you know, are in this world. Like you think that there is so much more to base everything we know about Atlantis on. Oh, and it's, and the Disney Atlantis is a perfect one for just what I, where I was talking. Uh, um, so much of how Atlantis is represented in that movie actually comes from Edgar Cayce. Uh, Edgar Cayce talks a lot about uh, how Atlantis had these crystalline energy sources uh, which, of course, everyone's got the crystal necklace in the movie that, you know, they can turn things on, including the flying cars. Edgar Cayce also says that Atlantis had flying vehicles of sorts powered by these crystals and other things. And you know, the, the big underlying theme, which is a little less explicit than Disney, is just sort of this air of spiritual wisdom. And certainly, you know, for Cayce and for a lot of these other spiritualists, they're very interested in the ancient world as a source of wisdom. 
and mm. it, it, I would say, I think you have to kind of read into it. I don't think I'm excessively reading into the Disney Atlantis, but the Atlanteans are certainly presented as wise and sort of, you know, profound in a way that the upper world or people are not. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much in that of, of how they're meant to be this, yeah, this incredibly special people in some way. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's hard forming all of my thoughts on it. Cause I, I think I'm just, I'm still not over how much I sort of feel like I was led to believe that there is, you know, more to it. <laughs> well, you know, and I'm just going to keep harping on the Disney here really too, because mm-hmm. it really is truly a phenomenal example, but there's a lot of others. I mean, this didn't come out of the, of nowhere. There's lots of pop fiction uh, that started this back in the twenties and the thirties and the comic mm-hmm. books pick it up and continue it as well. But you get that intro, which was what I deal with where my Milo's trying to tell the establishment about his amazing ideas and they won't listen to him. And that's a great narrative. We all love that narrative of an underdog who's fighting for the truth and has the truth on his side, but nobody will listen to them. And so, you know, this is the kind of thing I get plastered with all the time. Like, I, you don't believe in Atlantis because you're covering it up. It's like, no, it would be so, it would be totally cool if this was true. I've got nothing invested in, you know, trying to say this isn't real. It doesn't help me in any way, shape or form. In fact, you know, it might even hurt me <laughs> like to spend so much time talking about things that aren't real. Uh, it, that kind of narrative that, you know, thrives in the subculture, thrives in the conspiracy circles and in the sort of the anti-academia circles, it's, it's a fictional trope. Like it's been there all along. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it would be so satisfying too if, if you know, there was this, all these little bits of evidence that you could find for real that suggested it. Or, I mean, for me, coming from the side of looking at the ancient Greek sources all the time. If there was a single, I mean, even one other source from the ancient Greek world that made reference to it, you know, I think it would be just a tiny bit more convincing, but it's the fact that it's, it's just Plato. And, and when you read it, I think the key is to read it too, right? And to read it with the open mind or a, you know, historical minded brain of just, he doesn't even sound like he's serious. And that's how I go, like, how did we get here? Because he does not sound serious. I mean, he pulls the whole, this happened 9,000 years ago beyond the pillars of Hercules. Like, he's, he's pretty, like, like it's out there in the distant past. You know, it's, he, he's, and and I always fall back on too. It's like, he, we have to think about what who Plato is and what kind of author Plato is. There's a reason we refer to him as a philosopher. Everything mm-hmm. he wrote is debating, you know, different philosophical ideas, and repeatedly he uses metaphorical examples or thought experiment style examples. This is not an unusual thing for him to do to make up a story to try and prove a point. He does it time and time again. He doesn't talk about history. He's not known as a historian. No, I mean I, I've not read a ton of Plato. I think. I've read probably some of it in my undergrad, but otherwise probably just the Atlantis bits. Um, But yeah, I mean, he's Plato. He's not a mythologer or it's not a mythographer. He's not writing down stories from his people. Like he, he is what you're saying. He's doing thought experience. He's using analogies and metaphors. He's, he's like making an, a point through a larger fictional telling in order to demonstrate his point. Um, and you know, we, we even have the, the Athens part of it all, right. Which I think is another good example Mm -hmm. of how obvious it is that he wasn't serious. The idea that 
that at the same time, the Athenians were like equally advanced, but you know, they didn't get punished in the same way. I'm forgetting exactly all of the details, but basically the idea that there was an Athenian people who were, um, you know, as sort of ahead of their time all the way back, you know, 9,000 years before Plato, which is of course absurd according to like all of the physical evidence and textual evidence that we have. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's the, you know, there's this kind of a boundary. I feel like that some of these authors of pseudo-archaeological claims feel like if they're at least 10,000 years in the past, they know that the rest of us don't know much about that. And so we can kind of imagine it as a blank landscape that they can paint on. But lo and behold, we have a good archaeological record from 10,000, 15, 20,000 years in the past. We know not everything, but we know a lot about what was actually going on during those time periods. And so, yeah, like there's uh, talk to Flint Temple. He will be great about this. But like, you know, Athens was not the city of Athens 9,000 years earlier than Plato. It does not even remotely correlate. And that's not because they're... uh, we know what other things that are going on in Greece and the Mediterranean at that point in time. It's there's something that, that resonates to me in this idea that every couple of years somebody comes out and they're like, I have solved the mystery, I have found Atlantis, and it's actually here, it's actually there, and it's always somewhere else. It's always, mm-hmm. you know, like in the Mediterranean, outside of the Mediterranean, in North America, uh, in Spain, in Ireland. It's all over the map, and it reminds me of, you know, so the axiom I was taught a long time ago when I was learning statistics and analysis, it's like garbage in, garbage out. Uh, If there's something wrong with your sort of original premise, it does not matter how sophisticated your analysis, how detailed your breakdown of the text. It's not matter if you can break down Plato word by word by word. That doesn't prove it was real in any way, shape, or form, and so I think you know, to me, that garbage in, garbage out really speaks to the idea of Atlantis, because there's, there's a reason that every time someone claims to find Atlantis, it's in like a totally different place over mm-hmm. and over and over again, because there's there's no actual basis to pe- start with for whatever analysis somebody wants to pull on Plato or anyone else to come along since then. Well, and if and if you're ignoring such important parts of, or such important, you know, facts about the situation, it becomes useless analysis. Like if you're ignoring the fact that Plato did not tell myths in his works, that he was not in the business of, of talking about ancient history or, or mythology generally, and then you break it all down you say, well, this is why it's here or why it's real or whatever. But if you're ignoring that, that inherent nature of Plato, well, then, you know, their, your whole argument is tainted by that. Yeah. I mean, this is where it it's, has been said to me many a time, and I've seen TV shows try to do this. Uh, you and I were discussing, like, some people, like, well, Troy, maybe Troy is a real mm. place. It's from, you know, there's a written record to talk about Troy, and, and archaeologists seemingly found Troy, which is, it's way more complicated than that. But there's there's mm. some reasonable arguments to be had there. So if Troy's real, maybe Atlantis is real. It's it's not that simple. That that completely assumes that the texts about Troy and the texts about Atlantis come from the same place and have the same kind of origins, and they don't. I mean, like you said, Plato is not a historian. He's not a mythographer, as you said. Like he is a philosopher. He is making up examples to prove his point, and that's great and that's wonderful. But if we ignore that, if we ignore who he is, of course we're going to get all of our interpretations of his work wrong. Well, exactly, and and. You know, Troy is inherently, even if what we think of 
as Troy as a real location, it doesn't also prove the Trojan War. So, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't, it, it, the, the point remains like, yeah, but Troy might've been a real place based on this, but even still, like that doesn't make the Trojan War real. And, you know, I, doesn't the the idea is that they're just so (laughs) unequivocal like you just can't you can't equivocate them like at all well but i I think it's you know it's an important thing for us to discuss because so much you know it's hard for me sometimes like i eat drink and sleep this stuff like i love the ancient world i focus on it i teach it i talk about it i write about it but most people don't spend that much time in these spaces. And so it's pretty easy for someone to say like, yeah, I've heard of this, I've heard of that and let them slide together. Uh, but that's where, you know, I think I, I say about my own fellow archaeologists, and I think part of the problems that we have in archaeology with the, the prevalence of pseudo-archaeology in the media is that archaeologists aren't good enough about showing their work. Uh, mm. We're not good enough about demonstrating how we come to the results that we do because Sure, there's a lot of doubt in archaeological interpretation. There's a lot of room for reinterpretation, new discoveries to change our minds. But that doesn't mean that our uh, interpretations are just completely pulled out of the, the blue, that they're just mm-hmm. you know, complete malarkey. There's, there's something real. You know, they're based on actual information that even if we get new information or better analyses that come along later, doesn't inherently change or get rid of those original facts uh, underneath them. I suppose it's just the nature of these things. Like I'm not, I'm not going to be able to understand how these people get to their arguments because I, you know, (laughs) have a mind that's willing to look reasonably at these things, but I just can't ever wrap my head around the, the idea that Plato, and I suppose it comes back to, you know, well, he's talking about, um, the Solon. Yeah. Yeah. He says that, you know, that, uh, Timaeus hears it from uh, Solon, except there's a couple of generations removed here. So mm-hmm. even within the, the realm of his storytelling, the story has already been passed down by a couple of generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the idea of, I heard it from this guy who heard it from this guy who heard it from this guy who heard that 9,000 years ago. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And the, and the you know, quote unquote foreigner told them this too, right? And mm-hmm. Egypt is a great, for, even for the Greeks, Egypt is this wonderful mystical place uh, of sort of lost knowledge and lost wisdom as well. And it really, it's an era of mysticism to say that you got something from a foreigner uh, and sort of in that sense, an era of plausible reality but distant if that may, i don't know if I, there's, there's probably an exact term for this that i'm missing uh but it's like that you know it's kind of like orientalism in the modern world like mm-hmm. yeah we heard about it from the foreigners and so it has this sort of more plausibility to it well and then you add to that that the the egyptians you know already were around so many thousands of years earlier yeah. that then you know and add another level of well of course they would know because you know they were but even still it's like the idea is that atlantis was even way more you know ancient than even the egyptians yes. and I, I always love I, I think i see a few eyeballs pop every once in a while when i talk because uh, in my classes i'll talk about the egyptian pyramids and we'll we always talk start at one point or another with herodotus because of the it is from Herodotus that today we have this idea that the pyramids were built by slaves. Mm. Uh, and there isn't actually, the archaeological data is actually pretty good to show that these were not slaves. Um, but uh, we, we talk about it in class and it's like, all right, so, you know, what's the evidence, you know, for the workers at Giza? What do we know about them? What, you know, why did Herodotus say slaves? And uh, ever, uh, eventually I point out to them that uh, Herodotus was, you know, as was 
further, if I want to get this quite right, he's further away from, yeah, that there's more time between Herodotus and the construction of the pyramids at Giza than there is between us today and Herodotus. Like, mm. this is an ancient place, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just sort of, like, running with it and going with what people tell him, and, you know, it's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, and you know, that comes up for me a lot in the stories because there's a lot of, oh, well, why is this one different than that one? And I'm like, well, you know, there's like 500 years in between some of these versions of stories and things change in 500 years. Oh, good gosh, yeah. But, and it's so, we're so willing to accept sort of contradictions or multiple versions in our own world. Uh, but if we see that in someone else's culture or someone else's religion, it's like, wait, but how could they have a contradiction? It's like... We kind of do that all the time. <laughs> well, exactly. And, you know, it, it's the idea of, it, and specifically this is mythology, but, you know, it, the difference between Ovid, Ovid's version of something and, and you know, an archaic text that we have from Greece. And somebody's like, well, what one's right and one's wrong or whatever. And it's like, no, there's just like 700 years there. You know, it's like saying that shake, everything Shakespeare said should be exactly the same as how we live now. And you're like, that's, yeah. I mean, I think even just using that as an example, it's a good like wake up call of, oh, right. You know, a few hundred years matters quite a bit, but that's, yeah, that's, that's fascinating with the timeline. And I actually didn't realize, I knew that, you know, that what we know now suggests that the pyramids weren't built by enslaved people, but I didn't realize that it was Herodotus, which I, I was meaning to bring up Herodotus earlier because I think he's such a good example of, you know, even if Plato was a historian, that doesn't mean shit. Like Herodotus said a lot of crazy things. Yeah. And we call him the first historian. Yeah. And he got things right too. And it's, and mm. a, it's a great read and it's a fun thing to go back to, but you know, you wouldn't read, you know, one single historian today and assume that they are completely and utterly uncontroversial or that they mm -hmm. couldn't have gotten something wrong. And so, you know, we should never look at somebody like Herodotus and assume that there couldn't be errors or, the, or anything else at that point too. Well, exactly. And, you know, you're working off of a lot of oral traditions and traveling and talking to people who don't speak the same languages. And yeah, I mean, there's so many things, but it's just fascinating to me. I think it, what's most fascinating to me is just how people can look at what Plato said and decide that that means that Atlantis definitely existed. No, there, there's... From my perspective, talking with people outside of the disciplines of classics and archaeology, mm. in general, it seems like if, if somebody sees a really old book, the older that book mm. is, sort of like the greater air of authenticity that it tends to have. And we don't think about people in the past lying, not, not saying Plato's lying, but I mean, just we don't think mm. about people in the past as you know, lying or mischievous or inventing examples. We we sort of ossify them into this block and say that they are this great, you know, carved in marble bust uh, of an individual who, you know, is austere and important and couldn't possibly have been wrong about something or made something up just for the fun of it in that whole process. Well, and I think that's especially true when it comes to ancient Greece, you know, there and there's a much darker side to that of the inherent, you know, morality kind of, of ancient Greece and the way they're sort of put up on this pedestal of ancient people. And, and therefore, yeah, you know, especially someone from there and Plato, you know, this philosopher that everyone knows his name. It's, it's not like it was, you know, I mean, even somebody like Herodotus or Thucydides, like if you're not in the realm of classics, you're a lot less likely to know who they are, but Plato his name has sort of gone much further than than even some of the historians. So it's yeah, it's 
certainly the idea of, of him telling the sort of ultimate truth because he's this ancient Greek philosopher is, uh, yeah, it's convincing to a lot. <laughs> Atlantis has definitely hit that point too, though, with, um, as I said, when I, I, I like to do this exercise with my students and where I ask them what they know about Atlantis. And mm-hmm. when I ask them those questions about sources, how do you know these things? Somebody in the room always knows who Plato is or has some idea of who Plato is. And there's always some students who just don't want to raise their hand. Uh, But there are absolutely students in the room who can tell me things about Atlantis who don't necessarily know who Plato is and maybe don't even know his name sometimes. Uh, You know, this this information has percolated so far that, you know, and you kind of don't know where it came from anymore for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll admit even... I'm not sure if I knew offhand that it was from Plato before I started, you know, being as deep in the myths as I am now before the podcast, even though I did a classics degree, because the thing is, is I just always assumed that Atlantis was some kind of myth because of everything that surrounded me. So I just assumed there was a myth that I hadn't heard, you know, even having done a classics degree that told of Atlantis. I didn't think it was convincing. I didn't believe it. But I figured there was, you know, something that I could call a myth that told it mm-hmm. until it's like, no, there's not even that. And I realize now in hindsight, you know, the reason it didn't come up in my degree is because it's not anything. <laughs> it's just like a thing Plato talked about. And I didn't cover, I didn't, you know, study philosophy or or the philosophers generally. And so that's why I didn't hear it. But I think unless you have that contradiction unless you have a reason to learn that it is only in Plato and it wasn't presented seriously it is a thought experiment then then you're just sort of going to take in what's around you and just assume it's a myth even if you don't necessarily assume it was a real place and I think especially for modern Americans there's a very real issue here that it is part of our modern mythology Mm. Uh, that is Atlantis is regularly a a feature of things like Marvel and DC comics and other Mm -hmm. movies that are going on out there in the Disney movie that we were talking about. Uh, And this is literally a hundred years of storytelling in the modern American landscape. And it, it, goes back to that Pulp Fiction era uh, with particular uh, writers like Robert E. Howard was one of the most influential. Uh, Howard is known today, best known today for his character Conan the Barbarian, Mm. Uh, but he had uh, regularly featured Atlantis in his stories. He had a character, Cull, who was from Atlantis, who was a king of Atlantis. A whole bunch of the other Pulp Fiction authors picked up the same thread and started writing Atlantis stories of great warriors from this mythical place. And it's there's a very real tie from that Pulp Fiction world over back to those spiritualists of sort of the late 19th century, early 20th century, because, mm. you know, especially if we you know, uh, slide over into H.P. Lovecraft, uh, mm. Lovecraft and some of the other Pulp Fiction authors were very deliberately lifting from that world of spiritualism because they wanted to add sort of an air of authenticity to their stories about occult uh, and demons and other sundry things. Mm. And so that, Basically, that spiritualism world writ large becomes sort of a regular dipping well for these pulp fiction authors who are looking for story ideas. And so Atlantis, Lemuria, Mu, uh, there's some different histories to all of these lost continents and how they came about. But they all end up part of the canon of pulp fiction and early science fiction and fantasy uh, that works its way into the comic books and the movies to this day. And so, like... Why do we think it's a myth today? Because we've got a hundred years of mythological style mm-hmm. storytelling about it that, you know, 
everyone's heard of Atlantis. They don't always know why or how, but absolutely everyone's heard of it because of that last sort of 100 years of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Well, and even just you talking about that reminded me that the Little Mermaid lives in Atlantis. Like I, oh, I forgot or Atlantica. That. I have to check no, that out. I, I think it's Atlantica. <laughs> Actually, now that I say it out okay. loud, I think it's... So I think it's like maybe a bit of a suggestion. Sure. Interesting. But even one thing... So I'm a big fan of um, the Assassin's Creed Odyssey game, mm-hmm. you know, wandering through ancient Greece. And it's it's so accurate in so many ways. And you can tell they did some really incredible research in so many ways. And then they toss in an additional one you can go to and it's Atlantis. And it, it's such a huge bummer to me because truly so much is incredibly well researched mm-hmm. and accurate historically. And then... And then there's Atlantis. And they're just like, you ruined it. <laughs> well, it's, I, I was working with a student last year uh, to do, doing some databasing. Like we're trying, I'm trying to compile lists of different pop culture appearances of Atlantis and other archaeology mm. stuff. And, and she came across, I don't know how representative it necessarily is, but she actually came across some blog posts from uh, players of Assassin's Creed who the players is uh, the, the the authenticity in the game is valued by the players and so there were at least some players who were apparently pretty upset that they added atlantis to the game uh, as they were stepping away from that sort of accuracy world well i'm glad to hear that and not the other way around of players then went on to assume that atlantis was a myth because they put it in it was an unusual counter example it usually goes the other way around basically mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it certainly annoys me, and I like I played that those levels just like angrily. Like, why am I even here? This is ridiculous. It's all absurd. <laughs> and you know, people who are deep in Assassin's Creed will have a lot of ex- explanations for why it makes sense in the lore or whatever. But ultimately, they make a very real ancient Greece with incredible like archaeological evidence, and then they throw in Atlantis. Well, and I, I don't know. See, this is one where you're going to have to help me because I know there are some vague uh, uh, Freemasons and Templars uh, references in the Assassin's Creed uh, series. There are also in the realm of some Masonic authors, there are some Masonic authors that try to tie things back to Atlantis as well, including mm. Ignatius Donnelly. Uh, Donnelly is actually kind of a weird one. So, I mean, he was the one who got us started uh, on this Atlantis boom. Um he suggests that Masonic traditions originate in Atlantis. Uh, it's not a big part of his book. It's like one line, one paragraph. And uh, there's a very real question whether he was a Mason or not, because uh, there's like one photograph of him with his hand sort of in his uh, shirt, between his shirt buttons that some people claim is a Masonic hand sign. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, it's, you know, it's certainly not, wouldn't have been unreasonable that he could have been a Mason, uh, but we don't know for sure. Uh, but he does literally say in his book that uh, that uh, these traditions, Masonic traditions, go back to Atlantis. And then we have, there's, I, I kind of defy Masonic authors into sort of secular Masonic authors and esoteric Masonic authors. Uh, and the secular are certainly the more common and more popular within Freemasonry. But you get to people like Augustus Leplongeon, who was absolutely a Mason. And he goes way further down the well here of basically suggesting that Masonic traditions came from the Maya and the Maya took it to Atlantis and from Atlantis, it went to Egypt and you get all the sort of sundry stories going on. And Leplongeon was super influential uh, and, and he has sort of long threads that still hit people to this day. Wow. I guess at least 
he thinks the Maya are older than Atlantis. That's kind of nice. Yeah, the, the chronology is all a total mess. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds like it. And he's, he's, you know, it's funny. He hits a, an unusual place in the history of Maya archaeology because he's did some of the very first uh, sort of quasi-official excavations at Chichen Itza, this famous Maya mm-hmm. city in the northern lowlands. Uh, he is the first person to have excavated a Chakmul statue, which is a very famous style uh, of statue found in among the Maya, particularly among central Mexico. Uh, but at the same time, all those he chose where to excavate by psychic powers. Uh, mm-hmm. He told all the workers that he was reincarnated, uh, and that he used to be a Maya prince himself and whatnot. Like he is very, very specifically in this world of spiritualism, and uh, he. For him, not for all Masons, but for him, there was this very real overlap between uh, Masonic tradition and esoteric spirituality. And then, yeah, it's like, he's let's just throw in Atlantis and everything else into it. That's fascinating. He sounds like a much more out there, like Heinrich Schliemann. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's in the same time period. He's, he's in Yucatan in the 1870s. And he's he's got the beard, like, all the way down to his uh, belly button. And uh, oh uh, he's, he's got a, a, his wife, Alice, is a, a real pistol. Like, they're, they're quite the couple. And they were really, like, wow. in, exciting and fun people. Yeah, it's fascinating. Those, I mean, I don't know if he accounts as the the gentleman scholars they call them <laughs> back then were allowed to just go do whatever they wanted because they had money and were yeah. white. <laughs> yeah. He had money, power, influence, and yeah, he could just kind of go and follow, you know, wherever he wanted to go and get it done. And you know, it's, that's, yeah, it's very much the way that archeology span began and he's, we don't want to claim him, but he's kind of, you know, hard to totally, totally ignore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting the way that Atlantis has become something, you know, so far beyond ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about Lemuria or or those other places. I don't know if it's something that I've missed or they just Atlantis really fills the space. <laughs> No, Lemuria and Mu are both sort of modern world lost continents uh, in that mm. they, they uh, Lemuria gets its start in the 19th century as well uh, and is actually, um, Lemuria actually was proposed by geologists uh, and it, or paleontologists, natural historians is probably a better term here really, that they were mm. uh, suggesting there might have been a land bridge between Madagascar and um and Asia, because uh, mm. they were trying to suggest some, there, there are some biological similarities between lemurs from Madagascar and other animals in, throughout the old world, they thought. And so they, they, the sort of explanation of the day is like, well, maybe there's this Lemurian land bridge connecting the two. Uh, and that disappears really fast because it doesn't work at all geologically. It does not, it's not necessary for the evolution of any of these species that were involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, the natural historians stopped talking about this really quick, but then a Lemuria for, gets picked up uh, very specifically by uh, Helena Bovatsky, who is one of the, this author from the Theosophical Society, uh, who writes about Atlantis. Uh, and she suggests that humanity sort of uh, used to live in Atlantis and Lemuria and that we uh, uh, were guided out of both of these places by spirits from beyond this world. And there's some ancient alien origin points and all of this stuff. Uh, but oh, um, she's there's she makes this uh, Lemuria and Atlantis sort of very deliberate parts of her uh, spiritual world. And yeah, and Mu doesn't come along till the actual 20th century with a guy named James. No, it actually might be. 19th century, I'd have to double check this, but it's a guy, James Churchward, uh, who is trying to sort of 
create his own version of history uh, for the Pacific and South America and whatnot. And it's, yeah, these, they get equated though, because they're like, oh, lost continents, they must all be ancient. They must all come from these ancient myths. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, they're, those two are totally modern creations entirely. And um, from not ancient sources or mythographers or anything like that. Yeah, not even a Plato. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I had no idea. And is it just named for lemurs then? Yeah, Lemuria was actually named you know, after lemurs. <laughs> All, right. All right. I mean, nice for lemurs. Yeah. That's wild. They have their own fake continent named after them. <laughs> yeah. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And so, and you know, you mentioned the aliens part. So, I mean, how prevalent is that, like, before, I guess, is what I'm asking, like before, you know, there were TV shows and the internet, like when did the aliens built pyramids, aliens did all this nonsense? When did that sort of start 
coming out? It's got a long history. So the you know, ancient alien concepts, uh, you can absolutely trace back to Helena Vavatsky uh, in her book in the 1890s, The Secret Doctrine, uh, where she does, she's very spiritual about it, she's very esoteric about it, uh, uh, where she talks about humans being guided by spirits from beyond this world. And it's mm-hmm. not clear that, you know, if, if you could tie her down and talk to her today, like, I'm not sure she meant extraterrestrials necessarily, mm-hmm. but uh, it is something that she alludes to uh, as some they're not of this planet, but it's kind of hard to pass around. You get fictional stories uh, in the 1890s as well uh, of, you know, aliens building pyramids or aliens being involved in the pyramids. And it sort of grows from there, where and as we get into the Pulp Fiction era, as I said, they are read, readily borrowing from these uh, spiritualist authors, Lovecraft in particular, uh, Lovecraft's old ones, uh, sort of his like really creepy uh, extraterrestrial spirits. Uh, Cthulhu is, of course, the most famous of Lovecraft's old ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are definitely cribbing off of some of these spiritual traditions. If you read Call of Cthulhu, uh, sort of his most famous story, uh, he directly cites theosophy and the Theosophical Society in there several times. And it blossoms from there. Uh, the, um, the real sort of like breakout ancient aliens moment is uh, in 1968 when Eric von Doniken publishes a book called Chariots of the Gods. Uh, and this was like a real pop culture sensation, sold millions of copies, uh, translated into umpteen languages sort of book. Uh, and it's, you know, he was ultimately claiming that the archaeology, he's kind of the first one who says the archaeological record contains evidence for all this alien contact in sort of such specific ways. Uh, but at the same time, uh, he's uh, so not new in his ideas that he actually gets taken to court for plagiarism uh, when his book gets, gets popular. Like he's, he's not the originator of any of these ideas, but he is the one who popularized all of these ideas. Uh, and ultimately, the the TV show today, uh, by the you know, uh, was the original f- season one of Ancient Aliens was a um, an homage. It was like a four episode homage to Eric von Donikin, and the sh- it was so popular that they just kept going. And so I oh. actually lost count. I think they're in season sixteen now. Okay. Uh, they don't do annual seasons. They started in twenty ten, but they don't do annual seasons. And so I've kind of lost count of exactly how many seasons they have. But they are just churning this stuff out over and over again and truly you know i i actually i I have fun with this because you know this is a hundred plus year old idea the show itself is at least a 50 plus year old idea because it is deliberately based off of eric Eric von donikin's work and Mm -hmm. so i I always uh, show my archaeology students episode one from season one of ancient aliens it's like let's they've they've had 50 years to work on this what do they got and you know it's like they they've trot out stuff that it's like it's just it's just ridiculous like it's just not even remotely good or reasonable evidence uh, of alien contact of any kind and so it's like i you know i i always tell my students like you can't you know you got to watch this stuff you got to read the original sources you got to watch the tv shows if you're going to say that they're not true uh Mm -hmm. but like you know i'm not and and i just let them have at it and they just tear it to pieces like (laughs) it's it's so logically inconsistent Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's it, that's fascinating. I I don't think I've seen any of it, um, but which I'm fine with. Uh, yeah. But I mean, the idea alone, you know, I, I know enough about the Egyptian pyramids, certainly, and, and just the, the history there and all of that. It's always sounded like a real bummer to me, just 
the idea of even suggesting <laughs> that aliens did well, anything. Really. You know, it's it's one of those things. Like I said earlier, I think archaeologists need to do a better job of showing their work because not only do we have a good idea of how the pyramids are built, but like I said, we have we actually have the you know Mark Laner has excavated the workers' village at Giza. We have the houses mm. they lived in. We have mm. inscriptions about the teams that they were organized into for hauling blocks. We have names of the teams they were organized into. Uh, we were particularly looking at in class just the other day uh, some of the skeletal remains, and you know, we have literal bodies of people who lived, worked, and died working on these pyramids, and their bodies are riddled with arthritis and broken bones and strained uh, injuries because they were doing this hard task. Not only do we have like some decent evidence, we literally have the bodies of the people who did this and the, the hard work that they did shows on their skeletons to this day. I mean, to, to claim like, oh, the, the deus ex alien is a, how I usually refer to it. It's like, it must have been, the, it's a big building. I don't know. It must have been the aliens. It's like a, you know, it's kind of a spit in the eye of that guy's literal body that is riddled with arthritis and broken limbs that from building these structures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I can't believe, or I'm, I'm just amazed to learn that we have their bodies and the names and all of that. Cause I wasn't aware of that. And I think that's so important and interesting and, and I mean, great evidence, not that it really helps for people who are already going to believe what they're going to believe. Um, but I'm sure some people can be turned, but yeah, the idea, you know, it's just, it says so much about, you know, I'm going to be speaking with others as well about this, but obviously, you know, it's inherently taking away from the, the people, the culture who did this, who used their skill and their, you know, abilities and, and did this incredible thing. And then we come in later and it's like, no, no, it was people from the rest of the world. Yeah. Like the deus ex aliens, perfect term for it. Of They just came in and they figured it out. Right. And they just, they gave it to the Egyptians. It was a nice gift. Oh, that's where, you know, one of my uh, favorite lost city topics that I've written about uh, is uh, the so-called lost city of Z that uh, this British explorer, Percy Fawcett, went looking for in the 1920s. And uh, Hollywood made a movie about him. And there's all sorts of he's got kind of a cult following out there about him. And um, I was, there's been a couple of people who have tried to retrace his. There are many people who have tried to retrace his steps and look for the city and whatnot. And it. um it's it's really kind of it, it's sad. It's this is just one of these sad stories out there because uh, Fawcett became convinced that you know he had heard allegedly heard rumors about a, a city somewhere in the jungle, and he became convinced in particular that it was a colony from Atlantis, that it was a set of refugees from Atlantis, and. The, Fawcett's reputation gets bolstered in the media often because he, uh, you know, they say like, oh, he believed that Native Americans could build cities. Like, no, he didn't. He thought white mm -hmm. Atlanteans built cities. And in his own published uh, you know, memoirs that I, I literally bought on Amazon, it's not like they're hard to find. Like mm -hmm. in his published book that he wrote about this, you know, he has at one point he's interviewing an Amazonian Native uh, and who says like, oh, yes, my ancestors built pyramids and built big cities in the jungle. And Fawcett, uh, in his notes, writes down like, "But I know that's not true because he is of the brown-skinned variety." Oh you know, my and he, god! And he thought that the this city of Z was built by you know white-skinned people with red hair and hazel eyes. Like he's very explicit that, and this is just you know another one of these examples that pull, pulls into you know how we understand the Americas. Atlantis 
over and over again has been used as sort of an attempt to explain like, well, you know, those Native American populations couldn't have done this stuff in one way, shape or form. It, it had to have been some other, you know, the Greeks were great, right? So it's like a Greek thing actually uh, going on mm-hmm. here. And so it's, these these ideas are not just fun and you know, like maybe a mystery to solve. They have done literal harm to how we understand mm-hmm. peoples around the world. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah, and it's just it's just obvious racism that it perpetuates, right? It's just because I mean, and I don't know. Again, like I don't know all the the claims of of aliens, but like I've certainly heard the ones about aliens building the pyramids and building Sphinx and all this. I've never heard them saying that the the aliens built the Parthenon. Yeah, you know. Like we're not, there's no claim that the Greeks didn't build the Greek stuff. Yeah. There's, it's only the claim that the brown people didn't build the, like the, the impressive It's like, we're, we're perfectly happy to let medieval cathedrals be built over multiple generations. But yeah, like there's one of my favorite bits in that season one, episode one of Ancient Aliens, they're interviewing a stonemason and the stonemason's like, oh my God, there's no way the people of Tiwanaku could have possibly carved this stone in South America. Uh, but the, at the very end of his interview, he's, he, I, I'd have to, I'm paraphrasing, but he more or less mm-hmm. says like, well, they could have, but it would have taken a lot of time. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And they because had time. They could have. Yeah. They <laughs> absolutely could have. Like it just because, you know, they were maybe smarter in certain ways than we, a lot of people are now doesn't mean that they were like too smart to be realistic. Yeah. Right. They just came up with things differently and they, you know, used different skills and you know they just figured things out in a fascinating way it's why we should be so interested in them and not you know debating whether or not they physically could do these things yeah it, it reminds me too because there's the, the common sort of theme in ancient aliens and other pseudo-archaeological claims is to find some big rock to like that rock that one it's too big no one could have moved it there must be alien technology there must be atlantean technology or levitation rays or something like that um it was a couple of years ago, uh, Stonehenge, the heritage site in England, invited some uh, school children out for a, a, a solstice celebration. And they, as part of the celebration, they had a, a block, not from not from the original site, but they had another like multi-ton, I think it was a three-ton stone block. And they invited the school children to move the block. And they did. Like, you know, you strap a bunch of people onto a rope and get them to pull and walk it around. And like, you can do that and that's just school children moving one of these blocks around of a similar mm-hmm. size it, it's so tempting to just look at these things and be like well uh, you know i couldn't move that myself and so it must be aliens or something else under there and it's like it's it's actually not even that hard to do some of these things mm-hmm. and it's like just because you haven't set out to try your personal self because you have other things you're doing doesn't mean that people couldn't do it well yeah. i remember i very much remember a personal conversation i had with somebody once where he he made some sort of argument about like laser, you know, lasers couldn't cut the blocks at Giza as nicely as they are cut. And I, and I, and my first question was like, well, are you suggesting the Egyptians use lasers? And he's like, oh no, 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 I'm not suggesting that. It's like, well, what are you even suggesting then? Like it's, yeah, you know, stone flat fractures on flat planes. I, you know, my, my favorite like Instagram meme are these like quarry guys who go in and just hit rocks with hammers and they, they hammer in some nails into them. And after a bunch of hammers, like the rock just splits open on this nice long mm. flat plane. Like, lo and behold, doing stuff by hand is totally feasible and fine and can be done. We just don't do it anymore. So people don't see it or think about it. Well, exactly. And then, you know, what's the argument for why 
Greek columns have those perfect flutes. Like they're doing that by hand, yeah. you know, it, it's not, they can do that by hand. They, the carvings, the statuary, like all of that's by hand. What's what on earth is the difference between carving marble into like a perfectly realistic looking human and figuring out how to cut blocks for a pyramid. Yeah. No, and this is, you know, the, the ultimate thing is that people done so many amazing things all around the world. And, these pseudo-archaeological claims in one way or another take them away from those people. They, you know, they, at their best, they take them away and they give them away to another group of mythical people. Uh, and mm-hmm. at their worst, they take them away and give them to extraterrestrials and say, people couldn't have done this, or particularly mm-hmm. these people couldn't have done this. And so we're going to find some sort of deus ex alien to bring in and have do it for them instead. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. Like the, the whiteness ascribed to Atlantis becomes one of the biggest problems of it, it, you know, anything to suggest that that white people were somehow the fanciest and most like, oh, my God, you know, what would that math be like 11,000 years ago, the Atlanteans were this white race that were the most incredible, like it's inherently horrifying. And then to suggest that, I mean, certainly in the case of building pyramids in, in the Americas, that Atlanteans did it, it's like, oh, my God, like, what a stretch of horror to just make sure that it was the white people doing impressive things. It's, it's so troubling. It is, it is the perpetual sort of underbelly of all these pseudo-archaeological claims. And it's one that I think is important to talk about, uh, but important to engage with, because I don't think, like, if you were like, yeah, hey, maybe Atlantis is real, it doesn't mean you're a white supremacist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of white supremacists did think that. And so we need to dismantle these ideas and talk about where they came from and, and how we can come up, you know, come up with better interpretations and understandings of the past. Absolutely. I think the more people who come at it with like a genuine interest or just fascination, and then they start to look at these things and be interested. And, you know, if you're finding those people and you're pointing out the inherent racial aspects that they did not, you know, take into consideration when they started being interested, like most people, the good people are going to see that and be like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like that's, you know, that this is a problem. And, and yeah, I think that's the, the most important part because it can be interesting and entertaining to think about how on earth do these people think this? Like, what are they, you know, how do they get there? But then you do have to look at it and see like, well, it's not harmless, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it might seem silly, but it's certainly not, not harmless. Oh, in no way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's all, I mean, the pseudo-archaeology generally is, is fascinating. So. Yeah, it, it's, um. It's such a piece, and this is where so much of where my work and my writing has been turning over the last couple of years is looking at how much overlap there is between uh, these claims and the, the and fiction, and how mm. much this stuff shows up in fiction all of the time. And I think that's not a coincidence, because I think that pseudo-archaeological claims tend to paint a sort of engaging, mysterious past that draws people in. And it's a very real part of why archaeologists need to do better public outreach and we need to work on engaging publics in the same way. Um, When I do talk about this stuff, especially it's the profession's getting better, but especially when I was a grad student and just like talking about this stuff, uh, you know, my advisors and my senior uh, people in the field be like, that's not worth your time. That's just a lunatic fringe. You don't want to talk about Mm -hmm. that. You don't want to deal with that. And um, I I have sort of two responses. My response in the day was always like, you know, I don't think any problem goes away by ignoring it. 
Uh, and quite literally, uh, you know, I, when I was an undergrad, read one of these pseudo-archaeological books and thought it was really cool and started taking archaeology classes. So, it, you know, it's a very real effect on this world and my world. Uh, but in particular, I think, you know, that we actually have some survey data nowadays, too, that is important to talk about because uh, the most recent survey was done out of Chapman University uh, in 2019. Uh, They've not brought it back since Corona started. Uh, so hopefully they're going to get some more data for us soon. Uh, but in 2019, they had 41% of Americans saying that ancient alien contact was real. Uh, and that number had doubled over like five years or so of the survey running. Uh, they had a, they have an Atlantis number as well. I believe in 2019, the Atlantis number was uh, 57% of Americans saying that Atlantis was real. But the Atlantis question was really problematic. And I, I've talked with some of the people behind this survey uh, and their thinking. And the, the wording of the Atlantis question was something to the effect of, uh, did ancient advanced civilizations such as Atlantis exist? Mm. Uh, and they were trying to cast a wide net to catch things like Lemuria and Mu and some of the work of some some claims of uh, other claims that are out there by other authors about these like 12,000 year old lost civilizations. Uh, so they were trying to cast a wide net but I think I think a lot of people reading that question, do ancient advanced civilizations exist? I think a lot of people will be like, yeah, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Mayans, you know, they, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people who would just check yes to that. So I think that 57% is a harder number to really deal with. But the ancient alien question is really blunt. It's like, you know, it's do, do yeah. you know, was there ancient, is there evidence for ancient alien contact? Yes or no. And like, you know, it's, well, there's a agree, strongly agree breakdown in all of this, but the agrees come up to 41%. And I always look at that number as an example of like me and my profession aren't doing enough and mm -hmm. we need to be out more and talking to more people because there's no evidence for ancient alien contact. Not even remotely is there any way, shape or form decent evidence. That's also, mm -hmm. since we're on a podcast and people always hit me for this, that doesn't mean I think that aliens could not possibly exist out there somewhere in the universe. It's a big universe. The question, yeah. does alien yeah. life exist, is a separate question. Mm -hmm. to have, has it visited us in the modern day? Another separate question. Yeah. Uh, I, you can, we can talk about my opinions on those, but they are separate from my opinions as an archaeologist about ancient alien contact. The mm -hmm. claims are horrible the evidence is ridiculous it is cherry-picked it is taken out of context it's misinterpreted sometimes deliberately and there's just no evidence for it but when we have 41 percent of americans saying that it's real then we've got a problem and it's that problem starts with the archaeologists not talking enough yeah that's a huge a huge number i mean i'm sure the as much as i'm sure that's true the archaeologists not speaking enough, but it's also a matter of who has the voice, right? Mm -hmm. And not to say that people shouldn't continue to try to have a louder voice. That's absolutely true. But it's just, you know, it's unfortunate. That's where the money is, is because that's where the excitement is, is these, you know, and I, I think that, ho you know, maybe there's somebody who can make archaeology seem as exciting as I'm sure that it is. But just without, you know, it, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I keep thinking of, this is sort of leaping back a little bit, but I meant to bring it up earlier, but the, um, the latest, the fourth and bad Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> I, I like to refer to that as the fourth film in the Indiana Jones trilogy. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's certainly how I see it. Uh, like I know, you know, there's a lot to be said about the first three and the archeology, span obviously, but it was the introduction of aliens that made me even then go, oh, okay, no, you've jumped the shark. Like, this is not. 
you know, and, but yeah, it's the things like that. It's it's the the voices, the loudest voices in the room are the ones talking about aliens. Yeah, no, and there's, uh, I love to hate the the fourth Indiana Jones film uh, mm-hmm. because it, it hits some of these themes we've been talking about. It brings uh, and it. Um, the rumor for years uh, was when they were trying to make that film was that, you know, that Lucas kept coming to Spielberg and uh, Harrison Ford with scripts saying, like, you wanted to do this, you want to do that. And, the, and they said no to him several times, apparently. Uh, and uh, allegedly, he would not give up his main hook. Uh, and I, that main hook, from my impression, either has to be the aliens themselves or the crystal skull. Uh, as mm-hmm. an object and the crystal skulls are one of my other favorite pseudo-archaeological topics like there are actual mm-hmm. crystal skulls that exist uh they have been alleged to be ancient uh the the scientific data would suggest that none of them are that they're all products of the modern world uh but there are there you know all kinds of again going back to the, these have been picked up by new age spiritualism movements uh and have been alleged to come from maya sites or aztec sites or other sites out there uh, and they, they absolutely wrapped up in that movie. They, you know, they referenced the Mitchell Hedges Skull of Doom, which is an actual real crystal skull. In that movie, they referenced some of the Spanish conquistadors who went and uh, maybe did see cities in the Amazon and whatnot. Like that, that film, the crystal, like Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull is a really good example of like how fiction takes real elements and intersperses them in between that fictional narrative and when you walk out from the movie, you're like, I don't know, I've, I've heard of crystal skulls. Maybe they're real. Maybe they're not. They are. They're not. We don't know. And 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, when you see a documentary on TV about this subject, you don't quite remember where you heard it from anymore. And it all mm. gets mixed up. And, and we get to that point where everyone's heard of Atlantis, but not quite sure what the real original data might have been. Yeah. I didn't know that about, I suppose I might have heard of the crystal skulls, but I just... I just remember watching the movie and thinking, this is awful. What's happening? I love the other three. Why? Uh, But it is, it's just like, that's something. And this is probably just the way I see the ancient world too. Like, I'm almost curious how people came at it when they were, they don't already have an interest in the Mm -hmm. ancient world, but immediately seeing aliens, even back then I was like, oh no, now I'm mad. Like you've just taken away everything, all the agency of this ancient (laughs) civilization. You've taken it away and you've given it to aliens. And now I'm angry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We have great evidence, uh, up, down, sideways, all directions that you know, all of these cities in the Americas were in fact built by indigenous American peoples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. But I mean, I'm glad I'm glad there are people who are are doing this, and specifically that so many wanted to talk to me on this show because I'm really <laughs> excited about it. This is going to be like the first time I really dived into archaeology specifically and something that is explicitly not a myth that i'm going to be covering in an explicitly this is not a myth kind of way well it's perfect though because so many people think it's a myth when it's not a myth and there's a very real difference to be talked about there yep exactly and uh, i'm still kind of working out how i'm going to do it but i'm very excited to make it as dramatic a reveal and like really really make it good because it's just fascinating i'm also very um proud to have I'm uh, lucky enough to be able to publish a book of Greek myth themed cocktails. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, fantastic. Um, it's going to be, it's very dorky and silly. And one of them is called Plato's theory of Atlantis. And like, I think the first line is like, Atlantis is not a myth. <laughs> Don't think it's a myth. So I think I we need two shots cocktail. of alcohol in that drink. <laughs> 
it's pretty strong if I recall and very <laughs> blue and yeah no I've it's basically I've used a cocktail to debunk Atlantis in a way that I think is just very satisfying fabulous that is exactly the, that I think that is important work <laughs> Yeah, thank you. It's outreach, right? <laughs> it it's is. spreading the word. Well, and this is, you know, I mean, obviously, probably you, you know where I'm going from uh, here, but it's like I, academia has been so goddamn serious for so long. And I don't, you know, you, you, we do need to do our research seriously, but we don't, that doesn't mean everything has to be humdrum and dull and that that's the best way to reach people. Well, exactly. And I'm, that's why I'm thrilled, you know, I have people on this show all the time, because that's sort of what I'm trying to do is, you know, have an accessible mythology podcast that is like incredibly accurate and well-researched. And, you know, I dive into all the primary sources and all of it and have scholars on, but at the same time, you know, I'm trying to come at it in a way that is not academic because Mm -hmm. I personally found academia stifling. I didn't feel like I fit into it. It was, it was too serious. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's, it's great to have so many different like avenues to, to be able to spread, you know, important things. And academia is one of those important avenues and certainly vital, but that there are so many other ways as well. So that's all to say, I'm thrilled to be talking about this. It's so interesting. I'm super happy you're talking to all three of us and I think it'll all come together really great. Thank you so much for doing sure. this. I My really pleasure. appreciate it. No, thank you for doing it. Like I said, I mean, this is, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I say yes to these kind of requests whenever I can, because I think that it's like, we need to be talking to more people about these topics and they're only going to get better if we do. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad a lot of people feel that way. So that's really wonderful. Excellent. All right. Um, well, thank you so much. Ugh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. I'm thrilled with this Atlantis series, even if I'm a little bit afraid of uh, who might discover the series. And I've, you know, I've struggled on how to form episodes around something that is not a myth and thus completely and entirely out of my narrative wheelhouse. But these conversation episodes are really something else. I learned so much, so you can too. But also, it's just so important. These things run so rampant in our world today, this distrust in history and archaeology in exchange for the idea that ancient people, usually not white ancient people, were just incapable of all the incredible feats of ingenuity and genius that they accomplished. It's sad and dark, and even if it seems funny and silly, it perpetuates a really dangerous idea and allows people to believe that there is some conspiracy amongst academics to hide these things. I've talked to enough academics to learn that they are neither coordinated nor well-paid enough to deal in group conspiracies to cover up the truth. They're just nerds like us, and I'm so glad I get to talk with them and spread the word. So I hope you enjoyed this. I certainly did. And in honor of all the chatting we did on Disney's Atlantis, tomorrow I will be dropping a bonus episode all about Disney's Atlantis. Lisa Charlotte of Sweet Better and I watched the movie and we talked about it and everything they did within it when it comes to Atlantis conspiracy and lore. Lisa didn't know the realities of Atlantis. You know, she was me before I discovered. She is most of you. And so going into it, we had some really good fun breaking it all down. Tuesday's episode, I'm back with more on the how and the why of the Atlantis story, the history and lack thereof behind it, as well as the conspiracy around it. 
I'm not going into modern theories of location because they're all based in inherent bullshit, but I was too intrigued by the origins of the lore of it all not to dip my toe in that origin story from so many hundreds and hundreds of years after Plato. And next Friday, I spoke with Steph Halmhofer, another archaeologist specializing in pseudo-archaeology, but Steph is even deeper into the darkness of it, the links to the alt-right, the inherent racism, all the dirty details. Stay tuned. Thank you all so much. I'm really grateful for everyone who's listening. I am Liv, and I absolutely love real mythology from ancient Greece. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.